Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of the latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Julian Schnabel's new biographical drama, At Eternity's Gate. Set during the time Vincent van Gogh lived in Arles and Auvers-sur-Oise, France, the film is a journey inside the world and mind of the tortured artist, who despite skepticism, ridicule, and illness, created some of the world's most beloved and stunning works. In addition to At Eternity's Gate, Mr. Schnabel's credits include the feature films Miral, Before Night Falls, Basquiat, and the documentary feature Berlin. He was nominated for both the DGA Award and the Academy Award for his 2008 feature, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Schnabel spoke with director Lee Daniels about filming at Eternity's Gate. During their conversation, Mr. Schnabel discusses putting the audience in the perspective of Van Gogh, working with an editor whose main background was in architecture, and why this may be his last film. Hi, everybody. We have matching uh, patent leather shoes. Tell them why. Uh, there was the gala over at the uh, LACMA. So. And he kept, he, uh, he kept his, uh, he, he took his tux off in the car here. So I, I look like the fool. I tell you that. But uh, the last time we were here together, you interviewed, in, you interviewed me for the butler. I think we did that in New York. Was it? I think so. But same movie, same people, just different state. It's all right. Mm. Thank you. Nice to see everybody. Thank you for coming out. <clears throat> so Julian Schnabel's my hero, and um, he's one of the reasons why I do what I do. Um, and I guess I'm going to just start with, with first why. Why this film? Why? Well, I didn't want to make a movie about Van Gogh because everybody thinks they know everything about him. So it seemed absurd to do it. But um, I don't know a whole lot about other things, but I know quite a bit about painting. And that's what I am. I'm a painter. And uh, I think there's a, uh, an ine inevitability about his work. And uh, I think he's still waiting for his audience. Uh, but they keep coming. Anyway, so I, I think that and maybe it was a reason why I didn't want to do it in the first place, but uh, later I think the fact that most people think they have a relationship with this painter, why, it's good to try to answer that. And I think ultimately I got a, a chance to say things about painting that I wanted to say and uh, about being an artist and just about making anything. It wasn't necessarily just about painting, but maybe that was a way to talk about what it's like to be alive. When I, when I, um, I walked away with the feeling of like, you know, wow, critics, you know, 
because they dogged him, you know? And, and as an artist, you know, you get dog, you, you open yourself up to complete vulnerability. And I, what, it left me, I ended up leaving uh, this f film with the feeling of what defines art? Who, who, def who, is, who defines that? A critic from the New York Times? Uh, who, who, who defines, what defines art? And um, I was just wondering if you had anything to share on that. Well, I think is, is that one I think of the reasons that, why you did the film? Uh, I think that art is a practice that nobody asked you to make. I don't think people do it for the money and I don't, or for the fame. When you're young, you want agreement from other people. Maybe you want agreement from other people just for being alive, uh, and you don't really know how to get it, so you do different things to get people's attention. But uh, ultimately, the more you work, I think when Vincent says um, to Dr. Gaget, I thought that an artist was supposed to teach something about uh, life, and then I... I stopped thinking that. Now I just think about my relationship with eternity. And uh, I think the more you do it, the more you realize that the process of doing it is really what the thing is. And uh, the notion that Van Gogh wasn't successful is a bit is absurd, I would say, since, uh, first of all, he... Uh, if, and I guess there's that moment where Willem is sitting in that vegetable field and he pours dirt on his face and he starts smiling. And I would say that, to me, it looks like that guy was exactly in the right place at the right time. And uh, I don't know how many people actually feel like that in a lifetime. And the work that he made were, was his, uh, uh, his was his companion, was his covenant, and it was his. Uh, he had the dialogue with himself. It's a luxury when you can have a dialogue with other people, and I think that that's what he loved so much about Gauguin that he mm -hmm. had respect for him. And I love that. I love that that you showed that. I felt like when I was watching the movie, I was watching, um, like I was watching Van Gogh paint. Is how you sort of. Is how you directed it. How you how you shot. Who shot it? Benoit Delhomme shot the movie, and <clears throat> I think he did a great job. And I uh, guess there's a bunch of directors in this room, and I can say to you that he never said once to me, "I can't do it," and that's extraordinary. Uh, and there was no. And he asked for a lot. This one. Uh, and well, we devised ways of doing things. Uh, uh, Louise Kugelberg is in the audience. She uh, wrote the script with Jean-Claude Carrie and I and, and also edited the film. Uh, I did it with her, but she did it. Uh, you want to stand up for stand one second? Stand up, Louise. Uh, uh, so obviously we all know that editing is writing and Benoit, Willem, Louise and I all became the same person uh, at some moment. And um, uh, what was your question? I'm sorry, Lee. Where'd you shoot it? Ah, okay. So we were we were in Arles, uh, and we Where's shot. Where's that? Arles is in the south of France, and that's okay. where Van Gogh lived uh, from 1888 until he moved to Auvers-sur-Oise, where he died. 
and so this was, took place more or less in the last two years of his life. Um, Gauguin came down and visited him. His brother uh, paid for Gauguin to go down there and uh, keep him company, but Gauguin wanted to do it. And uh, one thing that was... Uh, but, but when we arrived, for example, there was no uh, wheat in the south of France, so we sent Benoit to Scotland... Asked him to shoot his feet. Okay, so how much yeah. was your budget for this? Budget was ten million dollars, and we probably had to spend two million dollars on lawyers' fees for some ridiculous fucking reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really was hobbled together in a way, uh, and and at a certain moment, also, uh, we lost three hundred and fifty thousand dollars from one of the investors. They said, "Well, can you shoot seven-hour days?" I said, yeah, I can. And, and in fact, every day at about 5.30, it was magic hour in Arles. And so Louise and I would actually uh, keep inventing uh, scenes to shoot. And so many of the things uh, that are in the movie were done spontaneously. And uh, Willem was up for it, and so was Oscar. He's so good. He's so good. He's so good in the film. Um, let me, do, you, do you like, you shot now a couple of movies out of the country. What, do you, what's different between those crews and these crews here? <clears throat> You're American. Yeah, supposedly. I mean, my father's from Czechoslovakia. My mother was born in New York, but she's from Romania. And I would say, well, I don't know what I would say. Say, that. be honest. Oh, well, I would say that, I mean, I felt like a person who's a person without a flag, really, somewhere in mid-Atlantic. And after I made The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, I was with an Telluride, I was with Sean Penn, who made uh, the movie about, um, uh, what was it called, with the, um, Emil Hirsch? The, um, into, into the Wild. Into yeah. the Wild, and I was sitting there watching Sean's movie, and I thought, he's really an American director. That was a real American movie. And I looked at The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and I thought, well, that's a French movie. And there was a moment where uh, Jerome Sadu wanted me to make the movie in English. And I said, well, I can't do that. Don't you think it'd be weird for uh, French people to be speaking English and people reading French subtitles of a movie about a guy who runs a magazine in, in, in Paris? He said, no, I don't think it'd be weird at all. I said, well, I can't make that movie. And so... Uh, we made that movie in French, and um, but this movie, uh, I think we're in a post-linguistic kind of moment. And uh, what is authenticity? And uh, okay, those kids it would have been very inauthentic to me for those kids to speak English, uh, and also for the people that were in the bar in the tambourine to be speaking English, but. When you're a foreigner, you speak your language with your family at home. And in this case, uh, the convention was that Van Gogh and his brother were going to speak English. And then I guess you could see how beautifully uh, Oscar Isaac speaks French. Uh, But he doesn't really speak French that beautifully. Uh, He did a pretty good job, but French people would have heard that it wasn't that good. And Louis Garrel came over to the house, and we recorded Louis's voice on iPhone, and he did Oscar's voice, and we were able to uh, 
uh, arrange, EQ it, and do the tenor of his voice wow. to where it sounded like Oscar's voice. Wow. And, and Louis Garrel did an amazing job. He also uh, read Aurier's letter and was Gauguin's voice in the end. And I'm glad that they let the, mu the movie play so you could see the yellow come up because I think that's kind of the, mm. really the end of the movie. But we didn't want to have too many endings, so we had to wait a little while to give you the yellow. Mm. I loved uh, the... I really was surprised and loved the uh, tenderness between the brothers. Uh, it just came from, it said it came from out of nowhere. And uh, that shot of uh, Willem in the bed looking up at his uh, brother, not wanting him to leave, you know, I, I felt. It's interesting when you think that an image could speak volumes because what they're saying isn't that interesting, but the fact that these two guys are lying in a bed in a suit and his, and he, his brother holds him like that. I, I thought Rupert was really the repository of all of this grief and all of this love. And, um, and at a certain moment he said to me, he, I think maybe does my character need to have more agency where I could speak about my brother? I said, well, I, if, I said, if you just do what I ask you to do, I think it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And he sure did. I mean, he was really able to be still and be, he had so much affection in him towards Willem. And he was so, there were some pretty chaotic moments in some of these scenes. And Rupert was able to be very stoic and still. Mm -hmm. and, and Still, uh, still, that's what, still, still, uh, the, that's, that's how I felt too about that, uh, who's that? Beast that was in the uh, in the um, mental. Hospital. Oh, Neil Zarastroop. He's a beast. He's brilliant. You know, and he, he, he just had basically told him that he couldn't. That what was this garbage? Uh, what was it? What was what was he doing? I mean, he was what, acting his ass off. Is what he was doing. Well, he wasn't acting. He's not acting. He's just crazy as a bug. Is uh, he? He's a great actor, though, but he's not. I don't think he was acting. I'm, in fact, I wanted him to say, cause some people don't understand what he's saying sometimes. Maybe some people did or didn't, but didn't feel like we needed to put subtitles under what he was saying because uh, I didn't want anybody to read anything when they were looking at his face except what was on his face. So uh, Niels, uh, he played in The Diving Bell and the Butterfly also, and he's... Uh, he's what, was, I, what was he in there? He was a guy who uh, had been locked in a basement and had been kidnapped and came to see Jean Doe, and Jean Doe was sitting there paralyzed, and he says, God, why, did, why didn't I call this guy when he got out of uh, mm -hmm. being um, uh, in... Mm -hmm. uh, after he was kidnapped, and, and so he was, instead of it being a positive thing, he was just mortified that he would sit there and look at this guy who he never called. Um, anyway, I wanted Niels to, do the, uh, to play in this scene, and at a certain moment I said to him, uh, you think you could just tell me the word sergeant again? And he said, you know, I am like a leaf that's blowing around in the wind, and, and I don't know that I could get to that place again and really deliver that line that you're asking me to deliver. And so I said, okay, and then he said it anyway. Uh, but we never changed it. And I think that the movie was made like that. I think that Willem was like a leaf blowing around in the wind, and we were like a leaf blowing around in the wind, and there was a lot of wind and weather. And the weather and the landscape were protagonists in the film. We shot the movie in the asylum. where. Van How long did you shoot the film for? 
well, it was 38 days or something like that. But we had two weeks where we was not scheduled, and we went down uh, to Arles. And uh, it's not a cozy place. Uh, maybe in the summer, but in February, when uh, Gauguin told him to go down there, uh, it's brutal, and people are not necessarily warm, and they definitely were not nice to Vincent. And uh, it's uh, so. When we went down there, the sunflowers were dead, and it was fantastic. I mean, to see those sunflowers really looked like you were walking through a concentration camp, and those and those uh, flowers each were people, and uh, to walk through there and 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 uh, really, Benoit did an amazing job, and mm -hmm. and and when. When he went to Scotland, he was wearing Van Gogh's shoes and his pants. He even had his hat in case there was a camera shadow. Um, and when I walk around, I look at the floor all the time. And sometimes you look up, but I thought oh, it'd be nice to see feet walking up the screen. And so, um, tell me about that. You t tell him what you share with me about that foot shot. About walking through the seasons that way. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, basically, uh, it starts, uh, and you're you're walking around with him, but without uh, it was it was a way of him walking but through. But who the, sh who shot it? Ah, oh well, uh, those particular moments at the beginning were mm -hmm. shot by Benoit, but at another moment we gave Willem the camera. So there's moments when Willem is running, and he's holding the camera when Willem is walking home after he's been shot and he walks in front of the Le Cadran, he's shooting his feet and then he shoots the people that are looking at him with the split diopter. I mean, basically I walked into a, a, a vintage shop and I bought some what sunglasses. What did you say? Uh, well, she asked to What is me. it? A, a, a vintage shop. Mm -hmm. I mean, an old clothes store. And I... Uh, bought these sunglasses, and when I walked out, I looked out to the floor, and I realized there were bifocals. So there was a step in the grass, and I thought, wow, that's okay. So I took the glasses and gave it to Benoit and asked him to attach it to his lens. Then it, the sunglasses were a little small for the lens, so we created a split diopter so we could uh, have a diff different depth of field, and thought that that could reflect Van Gogh's feeling of, uh, or anxiety or gets more exacerbated. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, and by not attaching it to the lens, we could just move it around a little bit and it felt more human. Uh, but uh, it's very interesting when people say, oh, well, what's wrong with the bottom of the screen? Or why did the, it all of a sudden came black. Uh, did something wrong with the projection? Uh, and to say, no, no, the movie's supposed to be like that. Just... Uh, it's okay. How about your research? I mean, like, did you... Two, two things. First, where, did he have a girlfriend? Did he have a lover? Well... And then how, do you, how did you go about researching? I mean, it's a, it's a bit ago. How, were you, were you, how did you go about your research? And, yeah, and did he have a girlfriend or lover? Uh, well, he had a girlfriend in Amsterdam. Uh, I mean, she... Uh, I didn't know her. Uh, and I wasn't there, but it's documented that he had a girlfriend who, and who had a child, and he couldn't afford to take care of her because his brother was paying his bills. And 
Uh, so he had relationships basically with people that he paid to have relationships with. So he didn't have a girlfriend. Uh, and, uh, and particularly at this time, uh, between uh, the winter of uh, the beginning of 1888 until the time he died, he definitely didn't have a girlfriend. And, but he was accused of touching women sometimes in Arles or being kind of like a town. Is that sort of uh, like how you began it? Well, uh, was he? Was, I, I, I didn't know where that was going. I didn't know where that was. Yeah, okay. I didn't know going. where that was going. That'd be an interesting thing for everybody to talk about for a minute. I'm just uh, for us, because uh, I can tell you what I thought. Okay, I'd love to hear what okay, you thought. I thought that something was going on, mm-hmm. and I didn't know where we were going. And I, when you came back to it, I thought that something was going. Was, was I wrong? I no, you were right. Yeah. Uh, but. At the beginning of the movie, you, you, you're lying in the dark, or I lie in the dark in the morning, and I think about things or whatever, and says, I would like to be one of them. I'd like to sit down and have a drink and ask them if they would like somebody to ask me if I'd uh, like a piece of fruit or, I mean, just mm-hmm. something. Um, and a woman would smile at me. And Anyway, and so in a very literal way, you kind of see what he wants, and then here's a woman standing on the road, but it's not really connected in such a uh, uh, literal way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that there's a big chasm. There's a chasm between art and society. There's a chasm between artists and society. And there's certainly a chasm between, or I mean, somebody might be very good at one thing and not so good at other things. I mean, he was very good at painting, very bad at relating to people. Uh, They did... uh, uh, there was a petition uh, to keep him from coming back to Arles. I mean, that's a fact. And so, uh, but we invented situations that would serve the story. I mean, he didn't paint the roots uh, in 1888, and those kids didn't bother him. I mean, that's not exactly what happened, but it was a good way to get him into the Hotel Dieu, set up this thing so then his brother could call, uh, write a, a letter to... Uh, Gauguin to get him to come down there. I mean, I wrote the letter to Gauguin, uh, but there were correspondence that were close to that. And then, uh, getting Gauguin down there, you could how you can see how how important friendship was, mm. and also somebody that he could communicate with. That's so cool. I mean, to, to, uh, I don't know. I thought about my friendship with you when I watched the film too. You know how supportive you've been. And how you are support you're a supporter of the arts, you know you support artists, and uh yeah, that's what I thought about that with him and um and your style, man, I really dig your style, I love how I love the music and I love your your lack of your lack of sound we're in we're in motion, we're hearing things, and all of a sudden we don't hear anything, and then we'll, then you hit me with some music it's almost like a, a cool jazz album and and who who did the who did Cecil the music? Taylor. Who? No, no. Just, uh, Who did uh, the music? Uh, Tatiana Lizovskaya. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is the right? first. I think the she's first uh, first uh, soundtrack mm-hmm. that she ever made. But sh- her first instrument is a uh, violin, uh, and uh, the first couple chords in that I made up, and then she and Paul Cantillon did the rest. Uh, but all of the piano music she played by herself, and then uh, Louise and I, as we edited the film uh, or saw the film, really 
heard that in his head. Now Louise and you, you say Louise and you edited the film. How does how does that how does that? So Louise, uh, are you the editor of the film? Yes, you're she is. the editor of the film. Okay, all right. Uh, what happened was uh, it was unintentional. Uh, Did you hire? Uh, had, had you edited before, Louise? She's an architect. Okay, so how did that work? Oh, uh, you can. You want to explain it, or hello? Okay. Um, well, Jean Claude Carrier and I started to write the script, and at a certain moment, I mean, something happened. We were we went to we saw a Van Gogh Artaud exhibition at the Musée d'Orsay, and when I was looking at the paintings, I was explaining what I thought how Van Gogh painted them, and to Jean Claude, he felt like Van Gogh was talking to him. I didn't know that till a couple months ago. But anyway, I was explaining things about the painting, and uh, then I thought, okay, there are, say there are 15 paintings in the room. You have an experience with each one of these things. At the end, you have an accumulative feeling about everything you saw. So I thought if the structure of the movie is that, and we have 15 vignettes, and it doesn't have to be an illustration of what's in the painting, but a story that could be a parallel life to whatever that separate image was. So we started thinking or talking about things, for example, discussions about Christ, Shakespeare, Vietnam. At a certain moment, uh, I was seeing a movie, I guess being somebody that may actually makes things, three-dimensional things, was seeing the movie a, a different way than Jean-Claude. I mean, he's 87, I'm 66, she's 33. She's from Sweden, I'm from Brooklyn, he's from Colombia. Uh, and we all had a feeling about Van Gogh and saw it in a different way. So at a certain moment, uh, Louise uh, started to organize the vignettes into a place where this narrative was coming that was closer to how I was seeing the film. Mm -hmm. And then when we went down to Arles, if you see the script, you'll see it says that, and we've been kind of rewrote it, but it would say, he walks in nature. Well, I mean, we had seen that was 18 minutes long of him walking in nature. Uh, there were uh, large moments of the film where there's no talking. And then there's some where there's a lot of talking. And so we thought, uh, and I think that she saw the movie visually. Mm -hmm. Head, portraits, horizontality, landscape. And I guess also, so we started to um, respond to these seven-hour days and also to literally to the physical arduousness of the landscape. And for example... So, so, I'm sorry, so, so, so you started the film without an editor knowing... So did you know she was going to edit prior to no. on the journey? No, what hap- no, not at all. What happened mm-hmm. was Juliet Welfling, who edited The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, was supposed to do this. Uh, but she was working on Jacques Odiar's mo- movie mm. uh, and wasn't going to be free till April. And I love Juliet and trust her and thought we'd wait. And we got done shooting on December 10th. But the thing is that... Don't you hate that when that happens? When you're, when it doesn't somebody... happen to me all the time because I don't make movies all the time, but, uh, but you hate that. When uh, yeah, I hate it when it happens. Um, so uh, Louise uh, learned the AVID program in two days because she basically does all of these builds, these buildings, and all, does all the spatial work, a sketch up and different things, and have, has um, 
uh, curated uh, different exhibitions. And in fact, there's an exhibition at the Musée d'Orsay where she built the walls. And so uh, I think thinking spatially has a lot to do with mm -hmm. editing and uh, also uh, inventing things. I don't think there was one set that we did that we didn't change everything around. So mm -hmm. someone asked her the other day, did you, were you editing on, uh, on uh, the set? She wasn't editing, but recorded everything, knew where all the skeletons were buried. And on December 10th, uh, we just started editing the movie. And it was on the laptop, so we went and edited in Mexico, airplane, wherever. And by the time April rolled around, we were so far. Wait, how long is that? So you got uh, December 10th to April 10th. What is that? December, March, was mm -hmm. it four or five months? That's good. Uh, we were so far gone that when Juliet uh, looked at the material and you saved of, some money. Well, we paid her anyway. Instead of breathing on her neck, we let her work on it for a while, but she was going to take out everything that characterized it as what it was. And you've got to all fight for whatever that thing is. I mean, there are a lot of battles to fight when you're making movies, but there's, uh, we really preserved what we thought was the film. Uh, and so we just were inseparable and basically um, went through that whole process and she used the editor and I mean, we edited it together. That's great. Um, none of your films are alike and yet uh, they still have the same heartbeat. You know, I can never, uh, you know, they, they, they have the same heartbeat, but just they, they're, none of them um, feel the same. Um, what, were you what were you going for? Like when you, when, you, when you, with this one, what were you going for? I wanted somebody to have the feel, I didn't want it to be about Van Gogh. I wanted you to feel like you were him. I wanted to put everyone in, the, in, the, in, in and have the experience. That's how I felt. I felt like I was criticized, and I felt like, you know, anything that, that you know, you, you read, the, if you read a review, the one thing you, what you cling to, what I cling to, is the negative as opposed to the positive. And I felt so, I felt for him as an artist. Well, he didn't really have People much. People were of telling a, him he was the, 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 take a, you start the movie with they're taking the paintings down from the wall. Get out of here. Yeah, that's a bit predictable. Uh, and that's why we put the girl at the beginning to say, hey, this is not going to be a regular biopic. <laughs> We're going to have some really fucked up thing out in nature that will be the poetry of this guy's life. And uh, it was a bit too rote. The fact is that he actually did those. And, and oh, you asked about the research. Those are the paintings that were in, uh, more or less, those were the paintings that were in the cafeteria. So uh, I guess I knew uh, a lot of art historians and people that uh, have curated and, uh, and authenticated Van Gogh's work. So we knew which pictures were in the cafeteria, which pictures were painted in the asylum, which pictures would have been at his brother's house. Uh, so for example, the roots were painted in 1889, not in 1888, but it was good to paint the roots to have that scene. I mean, Van Gogh has never seen a Velasquez painting or a Goya painting because Goya paintings weren't at the Louvre at that time. He did see Delacroix, Veronese, um, Franz Holz. But I thought it was more interesting to show that if you look at a Goya painting, 
and a Velasquez painting up close, you see a bunch of abstract marks. And that's what you see when you see a Van Gogh painting. And his work is more in concert with those guys than, say, Millet or Gustave Doré, somebody that he might have liked. So I took the liberty to pick what I wanted. I mean, I even had Caravaggio in there, but the uh, who I think is, is my favorite. But he did... Uh, and it just so happened, uh, they, they let us shoot in the Louvre, and next How to do you the, mean it just so happened? That's... Well, I'm a painter. What do you mean, just they, so they happened? Know, well, they, I guess, you know, they know my work. And, do you think uh, they would have let me shoot in the Louvre? Probably if you would have paid them. Yeah. <laughs> no, I doubt it. I but doubt they were very nice. And anyway, so we're you get shooting... A pass. We're shooting in the room where the Delacroix paintings are. And you see Garicault, the raft is in there also. But in the next room is... The Marriage at Cana by Veronese, which is the painting that Napoleon stole from the Cini Foundation in Venice. Anyway, we were able to just walk in there, so Willem gets to walk up to the painting. And in the real life, supposedly, uh, Van Gogh wrote, because he didn't think he liked Veronese, and he was painting the, potatoes eater, the potato eaters around that time, which was kind of a gray and brown and black painting. But when he saw The Marriage at Cana, he wrote, the colors in my painting don't come from reality, they come from my palette. Wow. The, um, you're, you're, I was in your house uh, recently, and I gotta tell you, I wanted to, sort of, I wanted to, I wanted to take it out of there. The, uh, the portrait of Willem. And then there's a, there's, there's a portrait of Willem, and then there's a portrait, another portrait of Willem. Tell me. Because I wanted to take, I would have, I would have taken anyone. One is going to go for some money, I know, but then one isn't going to go for some money. One was a prop, and I was going to. I said, you know, if it's a prop, then give it to me. I, well, I already gave it to Willem. You gave it to Willem? Yeah, I did. Uh, so what so who gets the who gets the who gets the money? Well, I hope I get some someday. <laughs> anyway. Uh, oh, here he goes, man. Okay, so what happened is Van Gogh. And one of the things we found out in making the movie is how we worked. And, and, and I don't know if anybody knows this in the room, probably raise your hand if you know. Do you know that the flower paintings, the paintings of sunflowers, he didn't paint all of them from life. There are 15 sunflowers in a painting, and there are 15 sunflowers in another painting. In some, another one, there might be 12 sunflowers. So what I'm saying is he would make paintings of his own paintings. Say he couldn't go out that day or whatever. He wanted to paint. He would make paintings. So he was kind of like Andy Warhol in that sense because he was sort of the first postmodern painter. So that being said, if Willem was going to be Van Gogh, I needed to make the painting that he painted of himself look like Willem gotcha. since he's in the movie. So I painted Willem as Van Gogh, and that's what's on the wall in the asylum. After I got home, I painted a painting of the painting. So I made a plate painting of the painting of Willem as Van Which Gogh. Which I was going to steal. And that's what I, he saw <laughs> um, at the studio. You said this is going to be your last movie, and I don't believe you. And I hope to f not. No. Why? why well, I have to really change. Like uh, well, you know, I have to really change gears to do that. I mean, everybody here probably, I mean, if that's what you do, you do that. That's your way of mediating the world. I do that by painting. And I really didn't want to do this, but I think, I don't know if it was my mother that was, uh, had an impulse to 
educate people, or maybe she did that to me. I don't know what it was, but I felt like he was uh, mistreated during his life. I think he's been mis mistreated historically with all of these silly myths, and mm -hmm. I think he's mis been mistreated in films that we've seen by directors that we all respect, who don't know anything about... I mean, Robert Altman's a great director. He didn't know a goddamn thing about... Uh, I was going to say Willem Dafoe, about Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it was a beautiful thing. I mean, Sean always loved the thing about the brothers in that movie. But the first thing that happens in that movie, he talks about a painting being sold for $36 million or whatever. Who gives a shit? I mean, that's not what it's about. And so, uh, I mean, Maurice Piala's movie, I don't know if anybody likes that movie, but it was abysmal in my opinion. I French people like it. Uh, mm. But I mean, it could have been about anybody. I mean, you didn't answer my question, uh, Julian. Uh, uh, what was the question? Wasn't it's my final question to you? No, don't. I hope I don't this is not. It. I hope this is not your. Oh. Was that just some bullshit? You were no, no, no. Because uh, I really have to change gears to do that, and this was something that was very, very close to my, uh, uh, me trying to understand what it's like to be alive. And I think I said what I wanted to say when he says, "When I'm painting, I stop thinking." I like to do that. I like to stop thinking, and uh, and I guess, uh, and when I'm painting, I do stop thinking. And maybe when we're making a movie, we stop thinking also at the moment when we can stop thinking, mm -hmm. when we can just let something happen. And I think that what you can see in the movie is how we really depend on, I mean, what Willem did, how he could access that place and do what he did, how uh, Oscar... Uh, Maz Mickelson, I mean, these people, uh, who knows where it comes from? I mean, Maz is a dancer. I mean, Chris Walken is a great friend of mine. I mean, the guy could read the fucking telephone book, and it's interesting. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but they can do something that I can't do. And when I was a painter a um, long time ago, and I had comments about movies, nobody listened to me. But being the director, the actors listened to you. So... I started to, I mean, and, and the thing about Jean-Michel Basquiat, I, I think I probably did it for the same reason, because um, uh, I hated Robert Hughes saying that you were the, he was, you're the Eddie Murphy of the art world and all of this abuse that he took, really. Uh, and I thought, okay, I owe it to Jean-Michel to mm -hmm. give him uh, the respect. Well, on that note, I respect you very much, and I'm really happy that you brought this into uh, the world. Thank you very much, Mr. Well, Schnabel. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. And thank you guys for coming. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming weeks as awards season approaches, including Q&As from Alfonso Cuaron, David McKenzie, and Steve McQueen, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.